The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and guests alone, and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Assistance Anonymous and its host. A little forward before we jump in. In recent episodes, the guest names and voices were altered in this podcast to protect them from possible backlash. But in this episode, the guest has opted out and has chosen to use his full name and keep his voice unaltered. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Assistance Anonymous. I'm your host, Jack Kaiser, and in this episode we interview Sean O'Banion, who reflects on his time as a production assistant in the early 90s and discusses the economic challenges facing assistants today. Hey Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So to preface things a bit, you've done quite well for yourself. You've produced multiple features, commercials, and have even worked with the likes of Michelle Obama. You also have years of assisting experience with top-tier talent, and to top it off, you're a member of the Producers Guild of America. So as someone who started as a production assistant, how did your whole journey start, and how did you get to this point? It's a long story, but I'll try and make it shorter. So I grew up in Los Angeles. I lived between, my parents were divorced, but I would go back and forth between uh, my mom and my dad. Uh, my dad was in Hollywood, just off Coenga, and my mom was usually somewhere down by the ocean, down by Marina Del Rey or whatever. And when I was, I really sort of discovered cinema and filmmaking around seven years old, probably. It was like 81, 82. It was the back-to-back punch of Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And it, I had never... It had never occurred to me prior to that people were making these things, that this was like a thing that you could do for a job and and have a career in that. Uh, But by that point, I mean, I just became immersed in it. I was joining, you know, movie fan clubs and I was obsessed. So because we lived so close to Universal Studios, I had read an article about Spielberg and about how at, I think, 16 or 17 years old, he snuck into the studio a lot. And the first time... I did that. I was 11 years old. So I snuck into Universal and I walked around, you know, back to the future square and I sort of hung out on the set of a TV show called Quantum Leap. And I basically did that every single day of an entire summer uh, from like 11 to 12 years old. Then my mother moved me away to Northern California and I went to high school where I was totally miserable and just knew that I had to get back to L.A., and had to find a way to get into film. So as soon as I finished school, uh, high school that is, I went back down and started sneaking in again. And it was literally like, I think it was, I started doing it in like June or July of 93. And by August, I ended up getting my first job because I was in the right place at the right time, essentially. So it was like totally luck because I didn't know I didn't know what jobs you could have. Like, I didn't know titles. I didn't know how you would start. I didn't have any specific interest that I wasn't like, you know, I want to be in the camera department or I want to, you know, be a producer. I had no idea at that point. So we were on the lot at Universal and they were putting extras in a van and I got in the van with the background and they were doing an exterior at the, uh, at the amphitheater, which I don't even know if the amphitheater is there anymore, but there used to be an amphitheater called like, they later called the Gibson Amphitheater, I think. Anyway, I got up there and as soon as I got out of this van with the background, there were two guys having an argument 
and I've come to later find out one of them was the Teamster, and the other one was the second AD. And the Teamster was saying, you know, I'm short-staffed because we're on the lot, we're, we're doing stage, so I don't have all my guys. So you have to decide whether you want your makeup tables in or you want your trailers in. And I put my hand up and said, uh, I can do the tables. Where do you want the tables? And they both kind of looked at me. And the second AD, a guy named Matt Weiner, not Weiner, Weiner, said, okay, all right, you do it. Go take these makeup tables off the steak bed and put them down this room, put all the light bulbs in them, and then come find me. So I did that, came back, reported back to Matt, and he was like, have you ever been on a walkie? I was like, no. He's like, okay, take this walkie. Don't talk, just listen. If I tell you to lock it up, you lock it up. It means nobody walks through. And just to be clear, you got into the van and just walked onto this major set without any problem. Yeah, I mean, I had been I had been doing it for like three months by that point. I had begged everybody in every department, I think except for maybe production, because they looked more intimidating than anybody else probably. Uh, you know, I thought if I went up to them, I'll get busted and kicked out. So I had asked like the sound mixer and I had asked the prop guys and, the, you know, it was just I asked everybody and everybody would say like, no, 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 kid, we're good. But nobody ever asked me, who are you? How, what are you doing here? Who are you related to? And I, like at one point, I remember the stage door had these big signs on it that said, no entry without approval of the UPM. So for the first like two months, I never even set foot on a stage. I stayed outside. Um, but when the cast would come out and go to their go to their star wagons, I'd kind of talk to them and hang out with them in the base camp area, like on the side of the stage, or I would talk to background guys. Um, and one day there was a background guy, or maybe a stand-in, and he came up and he was like, "Hey, man," he's like, "I I see you here like pretty much every day, but you never go inside. Like, aren't you hungry? Don't you want a snack or something?" And I was like, "A snack?" And he's like, "Yeah, the craft service table. Like, don't you want to?" like come in and get some food and i was like oh cool yeah what's your name and he's like you know john i don't even remember his name but he was like you know uh well, you know sean and i in that moment i was like okay now i can go on the stage and if anybody says i'll be like oh that guy john said i could come in and i'd totally throw him under the bus you know but it never happened i never got called out i just started going in every day I remember like people just assume you belong. So anyway, so the, the night that I got a job, basically, I held the lockup that whole night and they did this big thing where it was like background in black tie and this big, you know, big affair. And at the end of the night, the AD came up, Matt Weiner came up and said, I don't know how you get here every day. I don't even know who you're with, but you are in the office by 7 a.m. tomorrow. I will put you on paperwork. You got a job. And I flipped out and I went home and uh, I I snuck in the lot again at 6.45 in the morning. I, I would walk from my dad's house down Lancashire, go up the hill on the Lancashire, or not Lancashire, uh, what is that? Yeah, Coango side. I would go up the Coango side where City Walk is, walk through what is now City Walk, which didn't exist then, take the free parking shuttle down to Lancashire, then basically walk that one block around to the first guard shack and just walk in. And at that time, I'm not, by the way, not saying that anybody should repeat this because it's trespassing and you could go to jail. But yeah, that's that's how I got it. And I worked on that show 
it was the summer and I worked through the whole rest of the first season of that series. And then, you know, they went on a hiatus and it was like, okay, well, are they coming back? And then they said they were coming back, but they were going to spend some more money and they moved the show to Florida because they wanted more kind of tropical extras. It was a show about a futuristic submarine and, and its crew. And they said at the time, anybody who wants to stay on the show can go to Florida and you can keep your job, but we're not paying for you to go there. And I just, Spielberg produced it. So I was like thrilled about that, but I was like, I'm not going to Florida. I'm not, I'm not. So at that point, then I had, you know, I only had, that one set of AD contacts and they were kind of going to take a break and I had to figure out how to keep going. So I basically did the, I, I, I did the same thing on my next job. I snuck onto a set and got another job. And I guess I would say for, for people out there now, I would highly recommend keeping some resumes in your trunk. And when you're driving around LA, if you see those yellow location signs, just follow them. Follow them, park, get out, ask for the second or a key PA and, and, you know, say, look, I'm looking for a gig. So it was, you know, it was like I, I knew I had to do it and I didn't know anybody who could get me a job. So it was just like, I'm going to find a job one way or another. And the first movie job, like I said, was pretty much the same thing. I was, uh, I was in downtown and I saw them rigging for something, putting up a bunch of trellises. And I asked these dudes, these, these rigging grips, I was like, hey, what's this for? And uh, they were like, oh, it's a James Cameron movie. It's uh, something. Uh, and I said, oh, when's that, when's that shoot? And he goes, oh, they start tomorrow. And I was like, oh, cool. And I remember I was with my friend at the time, and he wanted to be a PA too, and he wasn't. He hadn't ever worked on a show. But, you know, he'd heard my stories, and he was like, I got to do this too. Like, I went, and I said, okay, look, dude, we're going to find out what this movie is, and we're going to come back tomorrow. So let me figure it out. And at that time, The Hollywood Reporter would – post every Thursday in their in their print issues a whole thing of like films in pre-production films in production films in post and you could go through and it would have names on it so I went through and I looked for James Cameron's name and I found it on Strange Days this movie Strange Days and I called Fox the I called the production office actually I called just the main switchboard and then asked for Strange Days they kicked me to the office and I said hey uh you know, I'm a, I'm a production assistant and uh, I got a map to the location, but I didn't get a call time yet. And the office person who answered the phone was like, oh, the PAs have a 430. And I was like, okay, cool. Thank you. And I hung up and I said to my buddy, I was like, okay, so they have a 430 call. We're going to get there at four tomorrow. We'll find a place to park and we'll go down there. And we, we did that. And they were still putting trailers in, putting base camp in and stuff. And then I saw a group of young people lining up. So we got in a line with them and there was an AD in the trailer and he popped his head out and he kind of pointed at the whole group and he was like, you guys all, all PAs? Yeah. Okay. Come in and get your walkies and paperwork and your badges. And so we did. <laughs> and I worked uh, like seven or eight weeks. That was my first movie. You know, it's really cool to see somebody come from such small beginnings and get to such a high position like that. It's really great to see. So in terms of PA, how long were you doing that for? I guess like six years. I had enough. I could have turned in my book into the DGA for the for the New York qualifications list. But I, I think, you know, it's interesting because when I first started, I was really kind of starstruck, and I it took me a few, maybe like a year or two, to like really start 
getting called for jobs and not having to hustle for jobs because I didn't treat it like a job in the beginning. I, I was just like, you know, psyched to be there and wanted to see the actors. And, you know, I wanted to be near camera, which of course, when you're, when you're green, like you're never next to camera. So I, I screwed up a lot in that first year to two years. And I think I just, uh, I wasn't on anybody's like immediate call list. And then once I started to realize, like, I got to start treating this like a job and being really responsible. Uh, then I started to get called and then I became like, you know, background guy, like I had great rapport with the background, get people really move quickly and do what I needed. But somewhere in the midst of that, I'm sure you've heard the term before, but people start to get like PA burnout. I've heard the word jaded thrown around quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, so it, it's one of those things is when you've done it for a while, right? People don't know that you've done it for a while. And if you look young, like I did, they assume that you're like a total newbie and you just get treated poorly sometimes or or you don't you're not given responsibility that you're capable of um you are if you're like with your regular teams and you're just kind of bouncing movie to movie and they they know what you can do but but the work a day crew the grips the electrics whatever art department people you know sometimes they're they just treat you like you don't know anything so by the time I was six years in, I had been a key PA. I was like, you know, working nonstop. But I had realized that being an AD was not something that I was interested in. If I think back to like, you know, I, I appreciate that you say I'm doing well now. I think I could have, I probably, looking back, I would have turned in my book to the DGA and at least had that as uh, some sort of safety net in terms of like, you know, being able to have health insurance or being able to have a really nice paycheck, uh, you know, when you're, when you're doing that job. But my thinking at the time was, you know, you can get seduced by that. You know what I mean? And I would see all these ADs, they would make really good money, but instead of like making their own projects or something, when you'd have a hiatus or a job would end, like they'd go off and take a trip to Thailand or something like that. And then they'd spend their money and they'd have to come back and they'd do it. They'd have to do it all again. And you become sort of a slave to it. And I just thought like, I, I don't want to be in a position, like I, I want to be one of the creative people. So I don't want to work myself into a position where I'm the logistics guy, which is what, you know, most of being an AD is it's, unless you have a great collaboration with a, with a director or producers, like you're not a creative, you're not, you're not viewed as that. And I think this business is huge on perception. You know what I mean? I mean, even from sneaking in the lot, like people just assumed I belong. So nobody asked me anything, but if you, if you're a teamster and, and, and you write scripts on the side, you might be a great writer, but nobody wants to know anything other than you hold the steering wheel and get people from A to B. And that's just kind of, I mean, I don't think that's changed at all. So yeah. So anyway, long, long and short of it is at like six years, I was, I had all my books. I had prepared the call sheets and the PRs and the crew lists and the pay stubs I had photocopied them. I had massive three ring spiral, spiral binders with all my paperwork to send off. And then I did something that in retrospect was probably just really dramatic and stupid, which is that I put him on a bonfire in the backyard and I lit him on fire. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I, I will not allow myself the option to just 
you know, keep doing that job and making other people's movies. But then, but then at that point, I was like, you know, if I'm going to make that commitment, then I need to start really looking at what I'm, what I want to be doing and start trying to, to get there. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people also, you know, when you're young, you don't necessarily do that. But I think, you know, if, if I could impart any wisdom, it's kind of like, pick your, pick your avenue that you want to go on and, and do everything you can to start moving in that direction. So that, that's when I started working for actors. So you started off on set and then shortly after you became a personal assistant to some major actors. What was that whole experience like? I want to say my first actor that I worked with straight after being in PA was Courtney Cox from Friends and, you know, Scream movies. And she's, she's just such a really wonderful, kind, decent human being that I just thought like, okay, now I found like, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm just getting paid to do a job and still be in this business, like I have found the best job ever because this you know, if you work for a decent person, they take care of you and they treat, they, they treat you like a human being. So it just kind of working for her was, was amazing. And at the time she was with uh, David Arquette and they were like engaged or about to be married. Hopefully you can't hear my baby son crying in the background now. <laughs> um, it's all good. And, and so she did that movie and then we went and did Scream 3 uh, and I worked for her and David and then after Scream 3 she was going back for the final season of Friends. I stayed with David and went and did a Warner Brothers movie called Ready to Rumble which is like this wrestling movie and then after that he was going to take a break and so my option at that point was either I could go work on Friends with Courtney which didn't sound like the funnest deal because I wasn't she didn't need an assistant on the show like she would have gotten me a job probably like in the office and I would have been just driving all over town dropping off scripts at their houses and stuff so even she was like you you you, you know a lot like you shouldn't be doing that job which was a bummer but I respected it and and you know her thing was like find somebody else to go with where you can still be on set and still be like, you know, making stuff happen. So my next job was for somebody who I won't say his name, but he's, his reputation precedes him. He's not quite famous in, in, in the way that he used to be anymore. I think some of that has to do with, you know, the, the sort of headaches that he caused people back in the day. And obviously this is like, I don't know, this is like, 20 years ago or something like that now. So, but suffice to say, he is not, he's not a movie star at this point. And he always had a bad reputation. I knew that everybody knew that it, it was a weird thing. It was like, you know, we're in this sort of me too thing and the time's up thing, but there were still people like even now there's still people who, whose behavior is pretty bad, but as long as they're making a studio money or making producers money, then they, nobody really says anything. And I'm not talking about bad in like a Harvey Weinstein where like I've never worked for anybody that was like sexually assaulting people, but just, just in the way that they treat assistants or the way that they treat PAs or whatever, you know, not the nicest people. So I went and worked for a guy who, you know, it was not a good experience. I made a good amount of money and that was sort of why I took the job despite his reputation. And, you know, it, it was, an, it was an interesting move. And then from actors, 
I went to directors for a while and then that's when I finally felt comfortable to make the leap into producing. Backtracking just a bit, when you were working on set or with an actor, was there a moment that pushed you to move on and do something different? I mean, there was an AD and this guy, I don't mind naming at all. I worked for, there was an AD, I don't even know if he if he's doing any stuff anymore, but his name was Jeffrey Wetzel or J.P. Wetzel. And he went on to do like the Hangover movies. And I had gotten hired by this key second on a movie called Rockstar that had Mark Wahlberg in it. And I was hired in prep because there was all of this music in the movie because he plays like a rock star, rock god. And so there were like three months of pre-records and the key second brought me in because of my, you know, he knew I was good with background. He knew I was good with actors. And he was like, look, you're going to babysit a bunch of rock stars because they're putting together. It's like the drummer from Slaughter. It's... um what's his name uh jason bonham john bonham's son a guy from i want to say like third eye blind maybe not third eye blind one of those anyway it was like five or six like legit rock and rollers and then and then mark would come in from time to time and they basically just i i spent three months in like studios all around la while they would lay down these tracks and then at the in the night like you know i would call up and say well they want to go do this and that and the other thing. And, and the ADs would be like, okay, go with them, you know, take petty cash and get them what they want and keep them happy. So I would end up at like strip clubs with these guys at like, you know, three in the morning. And, uh, and, and so the prep was awesome, but then all the pre-records were over and I went into the office for the last week of prep, this guy, Jeff Wetzel. And I knew, I knew in that week that there was, I was in trouble and I didn't even know, like, I, I, I had no clue why he was coming after me. But in that first week in the office, he was like on me. And by the time we got to the set, it was really bad, like every day. And it was like shouting at me in front of the entire crew and calling me an idiot and all these kind of things. And it was so bad that I remember the set medic would come up to me every day in the morning and like, you know, touch my back or touch my neck. And I remember he was like, you got any, you got any knife wounds in you yet? I mean, it, it was like so blatant the entire crew saw it. I had grips come up and like pull me aside and be like, hey, dude, you know, it's pretty f- fucked up what he's doing to you. Like, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't I don't get it. And they're like, well, you know, we see it, we see it. So like, you know, don't, don't feel bad. Like you can come hang out on the grip truck or like whatever, <laughs> you know, like everyone sort of like covertly had my back, but, but of course nobody's going to say anything to the first AD. So it, it got to a point where like, it was, it was, it was so bad. And then, and then the key second who hired me left the show, he was having his own issues with JP and he came up and he took all the PAs aside after rap one night and he's like, listen, I gotta, I gotta tell you guys something. I am leaving. I'm going to be replaced. The replacement for me will be here in the morning. But he sort of gave the spiel, right? Like he was like, I don't expect any of you to follow me. You guys don't make any money. Like I don't, I'm not, don't do a loyalty thing. Like if you need this job, then just stay on the job. And we all sort of like nodded like, yeah, we all need the money. So yeah, we're going to stay. And then the, the little meeting broke up and then he pulled me aside and he was like, listen, I don't know if you know this, but I've like, I've had your back with him 
as bad as you may think he is right now with me gone, it's going to be way worse. And I was like, yeah, I figured. And he was like, so, you know, he's like, if I were you, I would start putting feelers out and find another show to jump to. But it's totally up to you, of course. And I was like, okay, all right. And I decided to stay because my, you know, I've always had the attitude of like, yeah, things are tough. Like even with that actor I was talking about, like, yeah, it's not great, but if I can survive it in some way, then I've proven my you know, dedication to the job and my you know willingness to learn and whatever. And so I tried to stay. I really, I really tried, but eventually I did leave partially of my own decision and partially because he told the new second to do something to me that was just sort of shitty and stupid. So I was like, okay, it's clear. I'm going to go. <laughs> so what do you do? We were going to go to stage. It was a Warner brothers movie and they were going to go to stage and he, there was this cute little girl. I think that he liked this girl PA. And so the second came to me and the, the second who came in, by the way, was really great. I can't remember his name at the moment, but he was a really nice guy and he didn't get it either. So like, I don't know what it, I don't know what his like obsession is with you, but you know, he wants to make your life miserable, but he was like, unfortunately, now that we're going to stage, he wants to bump you down to basically an additional. He wants to remove you from staff, make you an additional. So if we have big background days on, on stage, or if we go out, I'll call you if you want to stay working on the movie. And at that point I was like, no, I'm good. Thank you. I appreciate that, but I'll, I'm going to go. For the people that don't know what that means, you're basically being demoted. You're going from a staff position, which is about five days a week, while an additional or day player is usually working about two to three days a week. Yeah, maybe if that. Yeah, exactly. Most of the time, yeah, less. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, yeah. And I'd done all, you know, I'd been again on three months. Uh, what is that? You know, I, 12, 12 weeks of prep on the movie or 13 weeks of prep on the movie. And then by that point, I think we were four or five weeks into the shoot. So I, I you know, of, of the PA staff, I was the one at that point who was on the show the longest. So it was like a huge slap in the face to be like, yeah, you're getting bumped out. And it, it was like, you know, but there were days where, it's literally the only time where I ever considered maybe quitting the business where I was like, if, if a guy like this can be in that role and in charge of, you know, everyone and the, and the movement of the day, you know, then maybe, maybe I don't want to work with these kind of people. You know, it was just, I mean, it literally was, it was abusive. And I met another friend of mine who I work with now, who is an AD, and he went through that experience, oddly enough, on Starsky and Hutch, the movie Starsky and Hutch. I was on that movie because I worked for Ben Stiller. And that was a good experience for me working for Ben. I've heard, you know, he has a reputation too sometimes, but with me, he was great. But on that movie, this same AD was working, it was, I guess that was his first movie with Todd Phillips. And he picked this person who's now my friend, who says... Starsky and Hutch for him was the worst experience he's ever had in the business. He actually quit Starsky and Hutch. He threw his walkie. He was like, fuck you and fuck this. I'm not going to be called stupid in front of the crew. And blah, blah. you know, he was like, he stood up for himself, which is pretty wild. And interestingly, that AD, Jeff Wetzel, when I showed up in, for, uh, in rehearsal days, couple rehearsal days with Ben, oh, he was my best friend all of a sudden. 
it was like, you know, because he knew I was with Ben, so I was protected. And it was like, hey, buddy, hey, mister, how are you? You know, every morning he'd come up and shake my hand. I would be like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, man? You nearly made me want to quit the business, a business that I've loved since I was seven years old. You made me want to quit. And now you're my best friend. You know, it was just so like, you know. Yeah, that's incredibly degrading. Yeah, that was like the worst I had ever been treated by an AD as a PA. And, but it was interesting to see that apparently like that's his, that's his thing or it was his thing, like pick a target on every movie. And I don't know whether he, in, from his perspective, he thought he was like, you know, toughening you up or training you or I don't know what it was, but it was, it was really, it was bad. Yeah, it sounds like it. So switching up a bit, pay rates for assistance within Hollywood has been a point of contention for these last couple of years. With movements like Pay Up Hollywood, which is headed up by Liz Alper, they've been pressing the industry for better pay for assistance in every facet of it. With that in mind, when you first got into Hollywood in 1993, did you feel like you were being paid enough? You know, I, I yeah, 93, 94 was like my first, that, that very first night on that show, when, when I got my first ever job, he, um, he paid me on an extras voucher that first night, a non-union voucher, um, because he, you know, hadn't approved me uh, getting <laughs> actually working, uh, but he could hide me in the background call. But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, this is the thing, right? I, I, I guess people now are making like one seventy a day or something on a, on a TV show or TV shows range from about one sixty five to one ninety five a day, depending on the production, but a commercial will usually range from about $170 okay. to $250, but sometimes can go even lower than that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, commercials, even back in the day when I was, when I was a PA, they, they always paid more, but of course you're doing like twice the work, you know what I mean? Like you're doing the physical labor too. You're doing grip stuff. You're parking a cube truck, whatever. I think, I think like, it's hard for me to remember exactly what I made in 93 or 94, but I remember for the bulk of my PA career, whatever that six year period was, six, seven year period. I think I was making like 150 and it was, it, it was until California labor laws changed. It was like 150 flat. And then when the labor laws changed, like we rejoiced because we were like, Oh my God, we, now it's mandatory. We're going to get a meal penalty of like $10. And now it's mandatory that like, we're going to get some OT. They would still find ways to cap you. You know what I mean? Like you, no matter if you worked a 16 hour day, you were not going to be making, it wasn't like you were going to go home with bank. You were, you were going to make a small fraction of what like a teamster was making or what, you know, camera operator would be making at that point with double and golden. So yeah, I think, I think I was making like 150 a day for, for that. And if I was like a key PA, I might've gotten like 165. But if you think about that, so that's like what, 25 years ago. And what you just said is that people are basically making the same rate. And if if you're only making a buck sixty five a day, you know, I was able to I was living by myself then. I had my own little apartment in like North Hollywood or something. And it was enough. It was like if I worked if I worked five days a week on a on a feature, it was enough. And I never had to get help from like, you know, my dad not that my dad had money and certainly my mom didn't have any money so i was kind of like you know i had to hustle like like i was saying earlier like 
before I was a guy who was just on people's lists and expected to do a show with them, I was calling people. I was faxing resumes around like, you know, before email time, I was dropping resumes off at production offices, driving all over town if I didn't have a gig. And for the first couple of years, like I had to have a regular job, like a, you know, what I called a real life job. I worked at like a video store and I worked at, you know, whatever job I could do where my hours were semi-flexible and I could take days off if I booked a show. But yeah, so when I think about, I mean, I jumped on the pay up, pay up Hollywood hashtag too on Twitter because I was like, that's great. Like there has never, people have always assumed that the, you cannot advocate for assistance, particularly production assistance. And I do think that pay up Hollywood at the moment seems to be favoring more of like agency assistance, you know, like mailroom people at like UTA or CAA or something like that more, more so than it is set PAs for sure, which is a bummer. But again, you know, the, the studio mentality, the, the, you know, I hate to say it, but the producer mentality seems to be like, you know, look, PA is an entry level position. You can get that job as I clearly did with no experience you can learn the ropes. It is a, it is an avenue which from which you can go in any direction. You know, you get to look at everybody, you look at every department, you work with every department, and then you can sort of pick which direction you go in. So their standpoint is as it was when I started that, you know what, if you don't like the money, or you don't like the hours quit because there are a thousand film school graduates right behind you getting off the bus that would kill to have your job on this Tom Cruise movie or whatever. So it's one of those things where it's like your negotiation abilities as, as a set PA are severely limited by your status and the fact that the trajectory for a PA is typically to go into the guild, right? And DGA. And even that's tough these days. I mean, the hoops, even back when I was doing it, the, the hoops you had to jump through to, to be DGA was like, you turn in your book, but if you're in California, you do it in New York. If you're in New York, you do it in California. Then you have to get hired in those places, which means you have to probably relocate, find a way to couch surf with people in New York, which is another thing. Like, I was like, I don't know anybody in New York. I don't go to New York for anything. How the hell am I going to work in New York? Or you can do the non-union route, right? You can start getting non-union AD days on commercials in, in town or whatever. But, you know, the hurdles were just too much. And I think it, it's crazy to me that somebody like you or, or people that you know are basically getting paid pretty much the same as I made 25 years ago. But I used to pay, I don't know, 800 bucks rent maybe and, and and then like you know whatever for electricity like 40 bucks or something so like you know but now from my friends who are who are still in la they're like you know dude a one bedroom's like 2300 a month or something just just to have a roof and then you're paying your cell phone and then you're paying gas and then you're paying all these you know the normal things but if you're only making you know 600 bucks a week after taxes or 700 bucks a week after taxes like how does that work unless you have family to like float you, which I certainly didn't. I, I think there needs to be a major revolution in what PAs get paid. And let's face it, you're the cheapest people on the set, right? The SAG background are making more than you. The SAG background have health insurance. 
if they if they get their hours each year, right? So PAs are just like you know just kind of hanging out there, you know, and hoping you can keep a job. It really seems like it's the game of who has the most money now. Being an assistant used to be open, and from how it sounded like, it seemed like anyone could jump in and make their mark. While now, if you come from money, you're going to do pretty well, but if you don't have money, your shots are just dwindling as they go. It's funny because the industry really rallies for inclusivity, but when it comes to economic inclusivity, it seems to be shutting itself away and ignoring it. Yeah, exactly. If you don't, if, if you don't, if you're somebody who is like, I don't think I would be able to make it now, you know, going back because I didn't have, my family didn't have any way to, to, to like supplement my, my bills. So if you're somebody who's in that situation, yeah, your, your barrier of entry is sorry, you're not going to be able to do this because in the beginning, you know, I think most of us start out like I did where you have to establish yourself with a team. You have to you know, build up your reputation and then you start, then the phone starts ringing instead of you trying to call people. And in the beginning, you're just like, you know, even now I think you're just kind of sort of like sending resumes and cold calling people. Or if you're lucky, you know, you have a buddy who's already on a gig and they have some, you know, day player days or whatever. And they just call you up and say like, Hey, come, come do this thing. I did get to a point in my career where the ADs like, Basically, if there were additionals brought on, they just, that was my job. They'd be like, hey, O'Banion, I need like three guys for tomorrow and Friday. And I'd be like, okay, let me make some calls. And I'd call my buddies and it's like whoever wasn't working, okay, you're you're doing background with me and you're going out with the second unit and blah, blah, blah. And I would just kind of do that. But, you know, again, that took time for me to establish that I would bring on people that knew what they were doing. And and you and I sort of talked offline about it, but it's not a job where, you know, there is PA boot camp, which I think is great. And a friend of mine started that and they run it. And if you can do that, then awesome. You should do that because there's no training on a set. There's no time. You're just like, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, you, you're just dropped in <laughs> and, and you got to sink or swim terminology, just even the way the thing, the way the background has to be signed in and signed out, all that stuff. I mean, if you just, if you don't know any of that, when you get there on day one, you're, you better learn faster, you're in trouble. With all these things considered, do you feel the experiences from PA have been beneficial to your career? Yeah, for me, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, like, once you've been doing it a while, once you know all this, you know, you can do a production report and you can do all the paperwork side. Um, that paperwork side, once it leaves the set, it's going to, you know, the production manager is going to the producers, it's going to the line producer, the production supervisor. So even when I produced my first movie back in 2007, you know, we were able to run our set even though it was tiny, we ran that thing like it was a legit show. And we were able to do that because all of us basically had been set PAs. The first AD was a set PA. The director had been a set PA. The, you know, it was like all of us had been through and a couple of the director and myself had been personal assisting. So like there literally wasn't a side of it that we didn't understand how it worked. I mean, granted, like we didn't have visual effects in that movie, not, not in any real way. And so, you know, if we didn't needed that, then we would have had a steep learning curve, but everything in terms of the day to day, 
how this stuff gets made, how actors get their call times. You know, like we we needed a lot of background in my first movie because we had a high school scene and we shot it in Arizona. And we knew a guy and I asked him to build a website that the background could just go to this website and from this website, they would get their call times. They would be told what they needed to wear, you know, because we're also, we were out of LA. So we were getting people that had never been on any set, <laughs> you know? And so just to, just to be able to have that thought and say like, okay, how do we, how do we get all these people? Cause we don't have a staff big enough to like, you know, we don't have a background company. We just need to get locals who will, you know, read an article on the news, local newspaper and go to a website and sign up to do this. And all of that, every part of that movie and even movies after that, that I've made or projects that I've worked on, you know, come out of experience that I had as a PA. And not only that, but a lot of our crew on that first movie, at least, were bigger budget people that we had worked with. And we had said, hey, we've got a very small amount of money. We're going to shoot for 16 days. We'll pay for your hotel and blah, blah, blah. And we got people that, frankly, we had no business having on that tiny movie, but they liked us and they believed in us and they knew us as PAs and they wanted to see us step up and be a part of it. So, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely, absolutely the things that I saw and learned on sets as a PA and a, and a personal assistant were absolutely beneficial. I'd like to end with this question. Do you think there should be change in terms of how PAs operate within the workplace? And what does that look like to you? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, we talked about pay scales. I think that that needs some major examination. And I don't know how that gets solved. I mean, again, the, the issue is that, you know, there is a union technically for PAs. It's called the DGA. <laughs> you know, after you get to the, to the point where you can turn in your book. So I don't know that there will ever be a PA union, so to speak. I just don't know how that works. If somebody figures it out, I'll be so happy. And I will hire, I will hire PAs from the PA union on, on my movies. And, and I do, I think that, you know, it's hard to say. It's like there are people who are really just decent people and nice people and they treat their team well, whether it's a first AD or whether it's an actor or whatever. And there are some people that get off on, on you know, sort of abusing their, their power or abusing their level. I think it's tough to be a girl PA. I think it's tough to be a girl in the business in general still. I think all PAs, you either get sort of treated with respect as a person who's like paying their dues or you get treated you get treated like you're, you're an idiot and, and, you know, people want to be tough with you. <laughs> they think that's, that's what you need. Oh, toughen them up. going to toughen this kid up. I think it's just like general decency is what everybody in the business should be focused on. There's no, it's the famous line, right? I'm sure people still use it, which is, this isn't brain surgery. You know, we're making entertainment and nothing is so dire or so, important that that somebody's safety should be at risk or somebody's psyche should be at risk i think the hours not just for pas but but you know I, i'm sure you have i i worked i worked some very very long days as a production assistant i know that the teamsters are you know first in and last out but uh, i worked on a lot of shows where teamsters had shifts when you knew the show if you were working on like a david fincher thing and you knew the show was going to go 18 19 hours 
there's a morning crew and a night crew, but they, you don't do that with PAs, right? And, it, and, and the, the rule has always been, if you're on time, you're already 30 minutes late, right? I'm sure that's still the rule. So, you know, my call was anywhere from 5.30 to 6.30 probably on average, you know, on a day shoot, which meant I was either there at 5, which mean I left my place at 4, 4.15 max. Just to be clear, 4 a.m.? Yeah, yeah, 4 in the morning. Uh, I, or I would get up at 4 in the morning, take a quick shower, run out the door, get in the car, get to set at 5, 5.15, my call time, you know, 5.30, and then you shoot all day and you wrap, you don't wrap until eight o'clock at night. So you've already been there 13 hours. Then you have an hour of, you know, signing out background or, or let's say you sign out background for an hour. Now you have to, now you have to collate all those, all those vouchers, you know? Okay. Who's in the 8, 8 a.m. to seven group and who's in the nine o'clock to whatever yeah you do all then you do the breakdown then you go to the trailer and then you're like standing there while those second seconds doing the thing you know i mean by the time you get out of there and drive home you just had a 19 hour day and you have to be back at work in five hours that that is insane that's always been crazy and i was doing that on a flat rate (laughs) you know i was doing that for 150 bucks so i mean i guess you know, it's twofold for me when I look at the things that the things that should change. I think the hours across the board for the crew, but certainly for the, the lowest paid person on the set, which is the PA. At the very least, if you're doing those kind of hours, like you gotta offer people hotels. You know, they a lot of productions will say, Yeah, we're gonna do that, but they PA sort of don't factor into that. Or it's like, Well, okay, I'm gonna get you a room, but you gotta share with the other guy. <laughs> you know, like kind of a deal and you're you know and you're a pa so you're like fine yeah that's great i'll take that <laughs> you know everybody else everybody else getting their own room and so i just think more more consideration needs to be paid i know that as pas you know you're you're considered the newbies and the trainees and you're just learning but like you know you're human beings and the long hours are very dangerous and so i think those two issues again the the money issue i don't know how you solve that but the hours i mean they that is something that can change and maybe maybe the pandemic is the thing that forces it finally you know it certainly seems to be on a lot of these white pages that are coming out that uh after 10 12 hours people are basically giving you you know eight percent of their (laughs) abilities or whatever it's interesting that it takes a pandemic for studios to figure that out yeah, well, yeah, it's just like this this mentality of like cinematic immunity, as we used to call it. No, oh, we can do what we want. We take over the street or we do this or that or we go as long as we need to. You know, my thing as a producer, I've I've had to cap days at 10 or 12 hours on, a, on, on movies that I've produced, on little indie movies, because you just, there's no more money. Like, that's it. Like, I can't pay anybody overtime. I can't afford to, you know, be paying drivers to, to be like sitting around, you know? So it's let's like, here's what we have and here's what we're doing. So, you know, I go to my first AD and say, when, when we hit 10 hours, I'm going to ask you for an update. And if we can't get the day <laughs> in, in two more hours maximum, then we're going to call it and we'll have to get those shots another day. On a big studio level, I feel like you if they took the money that they were 
paying in double and golden time to union people and just added another five, 10 days to that schedule. I really feel like there was a time when movies were not sort of the massive behemoth that they are now where talent and agents and even maybe producers, you know, maybe would not probably would not have liked to hear that. Like, you know, standard shoot was like 10, 11 weeks. And if you were like, well, we're going to space it out to like 13 weeks so that, you know, people can go home early, the studios and the producers would be like, no, (laughs) no, we're not. We're going to shoot it fast and efficiently and get out. And if it means a couple of 17 hour days, 14 hour days, then that's what it is. I think actually now, because of movies like Avengers and stuff like that, where the actors are coming in and out and it's like you're already committed for a year on some of these giant movies, I think even at a smaller level, I mean, look, indie movie shooting, like my first one did, 16 days, 22 days, 25 days. Your average movie these days is shooting 11 weeks, 12 weeks, 13 weeks, right? So I think if you took all that money in overtime, and just instead said from the very jump, our shoot is now going to be 13 weeks, but we're only going to ever do 10-hour days. I think that's a fair thing. I think you would have the people who are upset that they're not going to make that OT because a lot of people are making house payments on overtime and stuff. But I think more of the crew would be happy to, to get a good night's sleep and, you know, I mean, granted people have turnarounds and stuff like that. Um, the actors do, or at least, you know, the union crew does, but the PAs don't, I've had to go back to, to sets. Uh, I've considered sleeping in my car and crew parking because I've been like, it's stupid for me to drive home and then I'm going to have to drive back here in four hours. It doesn't even make sense. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that, that maybe is the biggest thing. Cause I think at the, at the end of the day, like that's coming down to like personal safety of people. Well, Sean, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Cool, Jack. Thanks very much for having me. Am I your first uh, non non uh, voice coding guest? You are, and it's why I love this episode so much. It's a little curveball I threw everybody, and it's been awesome. Cool, man. Cool, man. Well, I'm I'm uh, honored, and I and I like what you're doing with the show, and I hope people. Um, I hope people feel more free to sort of, you know, talk about what they're going through and talk about the experience. And I think it's really valuable and uh, I appreciate it. That concludes another episode of Assistance Anonymous. If you or anyone you know is an assistant and wants to share their feelings and experiences, write us at assistanceanonymous1 at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in and see you on the next one.